the last three weeks or so, we've heard from three different men who are passionate for the Great Commission and evangelism. Always good to hear from such individuals in the flesh. And I also like to read about those great men, evangelists and missionaries who speak to us from the past. One of them is Henry Martin, the great missionary to India and Persia. He did not live a long life, but he made good use of his time. And it was his words spoken not too long before he succumbed to disease that continued to inspire us today. Quote, If I live to complete the Persian New Testament, my life after that will be of less importance. For whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. I think we needed that reminder during COVID. I think we need that reminder today. As many of us grow older and maybe feel like we can't do much anymore. (laughs) If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. We need this urgency, whether we live to be 81, 91, or die at 31 like Martin did. We want that feeling of invincibility or immortality in God's will, of course, that'll get us moving to do great things as God's people. As we continue in the life of David today, we see how he and his men are able to do just that, accomplish great things. So let's turn to 2 Samuel 10 and see what happens there. 2 Samuel 10. If you're using your pew Bible, just follow along in page 217. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free free to take one of ours as a gift from us to you. So 2 Samuel Chapter 10. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their lord, You think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search out the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Therefore Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the, from the king of Maaka, 1,000 men, and from Ishtob, 12,000 men. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men, Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. 
And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rehob, Ishtob, and Maaka were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the battle line was against them before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam. And Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobak, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. But the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. Second Samuel 10 begins with the people of Ammon, and you see it ends with another mention of them. They're hapless and helpless by the time we reach verse 19. As for all that's between, it's not difficult to discern the structure of this passage as it's shaped by three conflicts. In verses 1 to 5, David shows grace to the Ammonites, but they disgrace his servants. Next, in verses 6 to 14, David's enemies go on to resist him rather than repent. And then in verses 15 to 19, instead of humility after defeat, there's further hostility. Again, there are three clashes here in three parts of this chapter. It's not that hard to see. I think a more challenging task here is application, not interpretation. What does this Israelite king's dealings with Ammon and Syria have to do with me? I'm no politician or warrior. How are these Middle Eastern battles from nearly 3,000 years ago relevant to us now? Well, if you stop to think biblically, there are experiences and concepts here that are timeless, showing kindness, experiencing great shame, working as a team, having good courage, being strong in faith, trusting in God's goodness, making peace with the Lord's anointed. All these are pertinent to us. We have great lessons for all people at all times. It doesn't matter whether we don an armor or put on a suit, whether we wear a crown or wear a hat. That's because the New Testament supports this connection between us and the past. 
there are some key passages. Romans 15, 4. It says, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Here's the famous passage, 2 Timothy 3.16-17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. There is in these passages or pages of 2 Samuel learning and equipping, growth and increase available for us. And we look at his contest in light of Hebrews 11, 32 to 34. We find that David, through faith, subdued kingdoms, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. It's that faith that connects us to God. All that to say, the examples of David and his men in 2 Samuel 10 are to some degree applicable to us. So as I think of this chapter, I believe there are three steps to handle adversity as believers. Those three steps to handle adversity as believers are, one, protect dignity when kindness is scorned. Protect Dignity when kindness is scorned. That's verses 1 to 5. Two, unite in faith when you're overwhelmed. Unite in faith when you're overwhelmed. That's verses 6 to 14. Three, fight rebellion when stubborn sin persists. Fight rebellion when stubborn sin persists. That's verses 15 to 19. First, as we face tribulation in this world, protect dignity when kindness is scorned. This is a good place to review quickly the history of the Ammonites. We start in Genesis 19, where we see Abraham's nephew Lot had a son named Ben-Ami, Ben-Ami's descendants eventually become a distinct people with their own gods and their own land east of Israel. They also became one of Israel's enemies during the era of the judges. And during the monarchy, Saul, the king before David, had one of his better moments when he fought and defeated Nahash and saved the city of Jabesh-Gilead. By inference, we can tell David himself had a more friendly relationship with Nahash. Uh, At some point, he showed kindness to David, and now David wants to reciprocate. Recall from the previous chapter that this talk of kindness is based on a lasting covenant between friends. Perhaps Nahash sheltered and protected David while he was on the run as a fugitive from Saul. He probably thought, The enemy of my enemy is my friend, maybe. We do know for certain that David wanted to continue to be in friendly terms with the people of Ammon. But Nahash is one king, Hanun is another. The new king of Ammon follows some terrible advice early in his kingly career. His princes are cynical. They assume the worst in David. Well, he's not here to show condolences. 
He's here for reconnaissance. Hanun orders that those comforters be disgraced. He has their beards. Consider the greatest ornaments of men in the East, half-shaven. The cruel king exposes them to public ridicule. In the most humiliating fashion, the kindness of God's anointed is scorned. But God's anointed protects the dignity of his servants. Uh, This is what I call rare guard. He takes the initiative to send a message to his humiliated men before they reach Jerusalem. Jericho is an ideal stop. It's close enough to Jerusalem, but far enough from Ammon. If he had his servants return all the way to Jerusalem, they'd be exposed to ridicule at the nation's capital. That would certainly get his people riled up for war, but that's for sure, but that's not necessary. And there's that high cost of their dignity. How could these men ever stand in public office again? What about their wives and children as the heads of their household are now the talk of the town? Instead of using them for provocation to justify war, David handles the matter more discreetly. He imitates Shem and Japheth in Genesis. Remember how these sons of Noah covered up their father's nakedness instead of publicizing his shame to others as Ham did. Like David, we must protect human dignity when kindness is scorned. We can do this everywhere. In society, we esteem our authorities, government, and employers. We treat our neighbors with respect. At home, we honor our parents and spouses. At church, there's ways to honor those in charge like elders and those in need like widows. We can apply Romans 12.10 in our relationship with all the members of the body. Be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. We can do this with everyone. Determined to show honor to all. Whether we're dealing with the believer being conformed into Christ's image. Or an unbeliever, broken, but still God's image bearer. And we can be even more specific here. Are there those around us who are mistreated like David's servants? And once we identify them, how can we protect their dignity? I'm talking about those who are bullied at school, ostracized as foreigners, an absolute worst, sold for human trafficking. As children and men and women are forced to walk in shame, exploited for sadism and voyeurism, is there something we can do as the church? Can we be like David who sent messengers to help? Are there havens, shelters, refuge for the afflicted, our very own Jericho? I hope you can think about these matters um, throughout this week. But let's go on to the next part of 2 Samuel 10 and discuss the second important principle to follow in our difficulties. Unite in faith when you're overwhelmed. We'll return to David in a moment, but in verses 6 to 14, we focus on his two men, Joab and Abishai. 
Recall that they're the sons of Zeruiah, David's half-sister, and they've been by David's side for a long time. Their task here is to take down the army of Ammon from the east and to hire mercenaries from the north. Some of these recruits look familiar. We've seen the Syrians before in chapter 8. They formed alliances for common causes like this one. And for the price of 1,000 talents of silver, they come to the aid of the Ammonites. They're at a location called Mediba, according to 1 Chronicles 19. While the Syrians were out in the field, the Ammonites were closer to a city at its gate. Uh, we learn later that the city name is Rabbah. It's an important place in David's story, not only in this chapter, but in the next, and even the chapter after that. So more on the conquest of the city later, since it won't happen immediately. At the moment, the army of Israel are the ones in danger. They find themselves surrounded. Joab acted decisively. He took some of the best warriors and faced the northern enemies. He had his brother Abishai lead the rest against Ammon. Joab's leadership here is exemplary, though he's not elsewhere often, but here his strategy is sound, his speech is worthy of imitation. What he says in verses 11 to 12 embodies the principle, unite in faith when you're overwhelmed. Let me paraphrase Joab's words. I feel as if we can distill verse 11 into this. I'll be there for you. It's not just a theme song to a popular American sitcom. It's what we ought to say to each other as fellow believers. And don't just say it, but mean it. We have support for this kind of unity from both the Old and the New Testaments. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Next, look at verse 12 of today's passage. I'd paraphrase it like this. Let's leave it all on the field and leave the results up to God. Leave it all on the field and leave the results up to God. The sons of Zeruiah knew that the good Lord was above them and their people were behind them. Their faith in Yahweh calls for good courage in battle and strength as leaders. Pastors and church leaders need courage and strength too. In his final letter, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 6-8, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Later in the same letter, he wrote in chapter 2, verse 3, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then finally, he says in chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. This is the kind of faith we need not only as individuals, but as a body of believers. Whether it's Joab and Abishai or Paul and Timothy, uniting in faith 
has its rewards. Back to the story, you'll see what reward awaited the sons of Zeruiah. First, Joab is able to repel the Syrians. Once they saw that their allies were gone, the Ammonites facing Abishai lost heart, and they retreated into the city. The Ammonites are contained, and Joab reports back to Jerusalem. Perhaps it wasn't the right time to take the city due to the rain season, or it could be that he needs further instructions from the king before beginning siege warfare. Whatever the reason, Joab can bring news of victory to David. That's because he and his brother united in faith when they were overwhelmed. So now we see up to verse 14. The value of dignity, demonstration of unity. But even when we do all the right things, the struggle continues. So we go on to see that like David, we have to fight rebellion when stubborn sin persists. The Syrians who fled from Joab regrouped and sought to avenge their defeat. They summoned their kinsmen from beyond the Euphrates River and met them at Helam. Where is this place, Helam? There's some clue from ancient sources that it's located somewhere between Damascus and Hamath. So even if it's right next to Damascus, we're talking 150 miles from Jerusalem. Now the problem seems far from David's city, but something compelled the king to go out himself and personally put down this threat. It could be that Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, was a major menace, a force to be reckoned with, an opponent with skill and experience only David can match. Whatever the motivation, note that David didn't wait for these forces to reach his territory. He headed straight to Helam. He went right to the source of the problem. That's the way to fight rebellion when stubborn sin persists. Let me pause here to ask some questions regarding your battle against sin. Are you proactive and assertive, putting down resistance against God in your life, getting down to the root of our sins, the deep issues of the heart, are you putting to death the deeds of the body? Do you identify, deal ruthlessly with fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness? If not, imitate David. He dealt firmly with rebellion and stubborn sin. As a result, what happened at Mediva happened at Helam. Israel wins resoundingly. The Syrians fled shamefully. The numbers are recorded for emphasis. I think 2 Samuel records an earlier count of charioteers, while it seems 1 Chronicles 19 gives the final full count later. More importantly, the key leader, the one and only Shobach, is dead. As a result, those kings in league with Hadadezer said, enough is enough. Not only did they break up the team, they made peace with Israel and started working for God's people. The Syrians refused to help the Ammonites anymore. And it's true. 
what the Bible says in Psalm 33.10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. So this chapter gives us a sketch of David and his men at their finest. And as I said earlier, the principles of 2 Samuel 10 are to some degree transferable to us. These warriors demonstrate three steps to handle adversity as believers, protect dignity when kindness is scorned, unite in faith when you're overwhelmed, fight rebellion when stubborn sin persists. But there's another way that this chapter speaks to us. We don't mind projecting ourselves into the image of David, the conquering king, and his victorious army. But the reality is, we don't merely have affinities with the heroes. We're also, in some ways, like David's enemies. We're like those nations and people who rage and plot a vain thing, as it says in Psalm 2. Those kings and rulers who set themselves and take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. This is not a sleight of hand in reading the scriptures. I'm not reading into the book what's not there. I'm not trying to guilt trip you. There really is rebellion and stubborn sin within us. Remember what Brother Kerry read earlier from James 4. James is talking to churchgoers, not heathens. He's talking to them about wars and fights among them, desires for pleasure that war within us, enmity with God as enemies of God. So those Ammonites and Syrians, that could be us. King Hanun, King Hadadezer, Shobak the commander. Am I so different from them when I pridefully resist God's will? We're not different, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've broken his laws, bearing false witness to our neighbors, stolen time and money. In our hearts, we murdered and committed adultery. What's worse, we don't stop. We resist, we resist and persist. And the Bible declares the verdict. In accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. How do we get right with the divine judge before that day? The only way to be saved from his just wrath is through the kind mercies of God. There's an appeal to clemency available if you turn to the Lord's anointed today. Not David, but someone greater than David is at the same time from his line. Talk about Jesus, who's fully God and fully man at the same time. Christ Jesus lived a perfect life. He protected the dignity of God's image bearers as he showed kindness to sinners, healed them and forgave them. But then when it was time, he went to Jerusalem to complete his mission. The leaders there did not recognize Jesus as God's holy servant and his anointed. Instead, Herod and Pontius Pilate, with 
the Gentiles and the people of Israel gathered to stand against him. But they could only do whatever the sovereign Lord's hand and purpose determined before to be done. So even as Christ was stripped of his garments and greatly ashamed, he endured shame for us, that we may put on Christ and be clothed white in heaven. Even as he hung on the cross, cursed according to the law of Moses, there was a plan. It was done so that God's Son may suffer in our place as our substitute to pay the penalty of our sins. He did that so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Even as Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, it wasn't the end. Having been raised from the dead, he dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. He ascended and now sits at the right hand of God. If death could not subdue Christ, if he has disarmed principalities and powers, if he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, what chance do we have as sinners by stubbornly resisting him? There's no use in fighting God. We cannot overthrow his plan and work. Someday the heavens will open and return in like manner as we saw and go into heaven. With the sharp sword of his mouth, he'll strike the nations. He'll rule them with the rod of iron. He'll judge all mankind, the living and the dead. None will escape. The time to surrender is now. Repent, that is turn away from self-centeredness and self-righteousness. Place your hope of entering heaven in Jesus. There's no way to earn eternal life. The gift to be received in humility. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if you haven't already considered this good news carefully, Jesus is the king. And we can unite in him as his members. We can be a good courage, be strong for his people, confident that all things work together for good to those who love God. God is for us. Who can be against us? Remember that if God has work for you to do, you cannot die. Let's remind ourselves of these precious truths as we, even as we sing together. The battle's fierce, the victory's won. God shall supply all that you need. Yes, as your days, your strength shall be. Let's pray. Lord, we look to your word for comfort and for introspection as we think about our battles and our struggles with sin, or even as we're persecuted by the world. May we ask ourselves, are we winning? Are we victorious? 
Are we overcoming the flesh through the power of the Spirit? So we ask these things because we are humbled often by our losses and our defeats. And we come to you asking for help. We look to your Son, who is victorious, who abides with us through the Spirit. Pray that you would help us to unite, help us to fight valiantly, help us to protect each other's dignity, comfort each other as we fight, as we wait for the day. Long as you tarry, help us to be faithful in the task you've given us. We ask for this through your Son's name. Christ Jesus. Amen.